0: COP28 is approaching. This year's annual Conference of the Parties for the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change marks the halfway point between the Paris Agreement, adopted at COP21 in 2015, and the key targets for 2030 that were set by many countries to put them on course to meet the goals of that agreement. The first global stocktake of climate action has concluded that there is a rapidly narrowing window to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. From the 30th of November, COP28 gets underway in Dubai to debate plans for getting on to that Paris aligned pathway. The Energy Gang will be there as an accredited media organisation to bring you all the key developments from the conference. We'll be evaluating the pledges, the discussions and debates, the agreements and the arguments with analysis from Energy Gang regulars and special guests. We'll be interviewing leaders and experts on climate and energy to get their views on the future that'll be mapped out at COP28. Subscribe to the Energy Gang wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss these very special episodes coming in the first week of December. This is The Interchange Recharged, a Wood Mackenzie
1: production. I'm David Bandmiller. The 28th Annual UN Conference of the Parties is approaching. At COP21 in Paris in 2015, a legally binding treaty on climate change was adopted by 196 parties. It entered into force in November 2016 with the overarching goal of limiting global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. However, 1.5 degrees Celsius is widely regarded as the critical limit. Crossing that threshold risks severe impacts on the climate. A week out from COP28, seven years on from the Paris agreement, and our chance of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius sits at just 14%, according to the UN's annual emissions gap report. Released on Monday this week, It tells a bleak tale that the world faces likely warming of two and a half to 2.9 degrees Celsius this century if global efforts to decarbonize don't increase significantly. Current emissions pledges and goals are putting us on track for nearly three degrees of warming this century. It's a point of no return that scientists predict will lead to catastrophic environmental damage, melted ice caps, and a dried out Amazon rainforest. So what do we need to see at COP28? What action do we need to see from global leaders to drive change? And can we still limit the planet to one and a half degrees of warming? To discuss this and more, we've enlisted two climate and energy experts. Angela Wilkinson is secretary general and CEO of the World Energy Council.
2: I think this COP, if we really are wanting to keep the hope of 1.5 degrees alive, firstly, we're going to overshoot, so climate adaptation is going to be essential. But if we want to keep it alive, we're going to have to have an all-leavers approach. And we're going to have to have an everybody sitting at the table as mature people. And we're going to have to have a new approach to collaboration.
1: Elena Belletti is Global Head of Carbon Research at Woodmac.
2: At COP27, there was a lot of discussion
3: about the need to step away from unabated fossil fuels, the need to to scale up the penetration of renewable energy, for example. And these have been discussions that, you know, have been ongoing for years, but they're sometimes a little controversial, you know, reducing the dependence from, uh, from fossil fuels, from oil and gas, for example. And I think it's quite promising that the president of COP, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, has put one of the main targets, one of the four main goals uh, set at COP this year is to fast track the transition away from fossil fuels. So there is promise, there is momentum behind this important goal.
1: So Angela, I'll start with you. I wanted to get your thoughts on what you would like to see discussed and come out of COP28 this year.
2: It's a climate centric meeting. It's gonna do a global stock take on where are we in terms of global ambitions to keep additional temperature rise below 1.5 degrees centigrade or below two degrees centigrade. And it's really trying to bring the world together around this climate change emergency agenda. So I'm hopeful that we will not be too depressed by the news as we go into COP that we are off track for our commitments and our ambitions, that there will be a better quality conversation during the COP meetings, because we see great polarization and divisiveness around particularly the energy transition agenda. And the outcome I would like is to see something which is around realistic hope rather than climate catastrophizing or technological hubris and optimism.
3: Yeah, I think uh, I, I agree with uh with Angela. You know, we need to keep in mind that in the end COP is a country Conversation, But in the end, who plays a really big role in uh, reducing emissions and in bringing forward the energy transition are companies, especially companies in hard-to-abate sectors, especially companies that are very intensive in their emissions. And I think this year's COP is actually... Um, quite promising in the sense that there are a lot of companies that are participating, oil and gas companies especially because of the the geopolitics of the region as well, where COP is hosted, are quite involved and they they have been uh, quite welcome at the table. So, the hope is that, you know, there will be a lot of engagement with companies. There will be also a lot of discussion about how to move pledges forward, how to actually translate the intergovernmental discussion into actionable legislation that is binding for countries and for companies within those countries, and that the targets that are set are more achievable but also more quantifiable. So far, unfortunately, only about 22% of countries, for example, include quantifiable targets that are aligned with the SDGs in their pledges. So I would really like to see an improvement on that at this COP.
1: And Elena, building on that, it, you know, Angela, you mentioned earlier that there's going to be the stock take uh, during this. And clearly, we'd like to have a positive outcome with momentum, initiatives, and action taken afterwards. Uh, But how do you feel that's going to go in this session? Do you think that there's going to be a lot of defensiveness on some of these discussions? Or do you think that hopefully it will prove productive and people know what they need to do and take action?
2: I don't think there's a defensive discussion at the conference of the parties. I think pretty much political will is pretty universal on the need to address the climate change agenda. I think what's different is how to, and by when commitments can be delivered. There's no disagreement about direction, but there are disagreements about what's achievable at pace and scale and how that's achievable. And, and building on what Elena said, I also think that it, although this conference of the parties is broadening beyond governments to, involve business as part of solutions, it's very important to remember that the climate change agenda in energy can only be solved if we bring demand and use to the table. It can't just be about the supply side and the production side of the energy equation. It must be about our norms, behaviors, values as consumers and as users of energy or buyers of food or managers of forests. So I think that this Conference of the Parties is broadening that conversation away from governments into what are the solutions that businesses bring to the table. But at the same time, we must remember that it's not just markets and states. It is also going to have to involve the role of hundreds of thousands of diverse communities and customers and citizens across the world. So I think this COP is um, a way of trying to point to the fact that we can't just drive climate change agendas top-down. We really have to engage bottom-up and we have to achieve an acceleration sideways, in effect, a horizontal movement that's not polarized between top-down, bottom-up, or between all good or all bad solutions.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on that. I mean, one of the things this podcast has taught me is the, the Herculean effort with all parties involved that's going to be needed to drive the initiatives forward. Um, It's not just going to be a handful uh, of influential players making decisions. Everybody needs to participate and have a voice. Angela, what are some of the pledges that were made in COP27 that really haven't been fulfilled uh, as of yet? uh,
2: There were pledges made in terms of climate neutrality targets, in terms of net zero. So climate neutrality by mid-century 2050, 2060, by countries. There are also net zero commitments made by... Um, businesses and um, governments. Um, there are targets around um, how much we have to fight, how much finance needs to be available. How do we get from one trillion dollars a year to four trillion dollars a year in terms of the investment required to finance transition? And there were commitments made in terms of how do we help the most vulnerable and developing economies. In terms of how do we meet the pledge of a hundred billion a year commitment for um, those countries or actually extend that even further. And then in Sharm el-Sheikh, there was the introduction of a new um, area of commitments, which was around the um, the damage and uh, damage fund and uh, loss and damage fund. How do we actually um, in- do more, actually, for the most vulnerable and developing economies, recognising that they're going to be at the brunt of the climate change impacts for the next couple of decades. So they need not only investment to to help them develop their food, energy, water, and every other system, but they also need investment to help them bear the the impacts, the cost of the impacts of the early climate change um, impacts that we now see coming through. So those are the types of commitments, governmental, um, targets, finance and investment, technology cooperation, and loss and damage funds. And I think the issue is really not
3: that COP 27 didn't deliver on the pl- on the pledges made at COP 27. The issue is that sometimes we didn't deliver on the pledges made at the original COP in 2015 and on the on the previous pledges that have been made since the Kyoto Protocol uh, more than 20 years ago. And I think uh, you know I I completely agree with Angela on the need to really push forward on on some of these areas. One of the things that I find most promising probably in this COP is that, you know, at COP27 there was a lot of discussion about the need to step away from unabated fossil fuels, the need to to scale up the penetration of renewable energy, for example, and these have been discussions that, you know, have been ongoing for years, but they're they're sometimes a little controversial, you know, reducing the dependence from, uh, from fossil fuels, from oil and gas, for example, and I think it's quite promising that the president of COP, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, has put one of the main targets, one of the four main goals uh, set at COP this year, is to fast-track the transition away from fossil fuels. So there is promise, there is momentum behind this important goal.
1: Elena, hey, how do you think the current geopolitical situation? Right now is going to impact the discussions around COP twenty. Well, uh,
3: there are, I mean, the, the current geopolitical situation is quite complex in many areas. There are several uh, several conflicts around the world that are impacting the energy security of different uh, uh, different areas of the globe. So there is definitely something to be said about you know, the age-old balancing and, and trade-off between uh, energy security, energy transition, uh, and the whole energy trilemma, really. I think one thing that I that I find interesting is that, um, you know, the US and China, which are responsible for almost half of the total energy emissions uh, in the world, have started really negotiating and uh, stepping up the conversation on the energy transition and there are two countries that really have a lot of opportunity and a lot of responsibility as well for the energy transition. So I find that promising in terms of uh, of geopolitics. Now, in terms of the region itself, uh, of course, the Middle East is currently uh, in the middle of, of a conflict. Nevertheless, what I find uh, interesting and encouraging is, as I was mentioning at the beginning, the fact that oil and gas companies in the Middle East that are obviously uh, responsible for a lot of the oil supply to Europe, that are responsible for a lot of the the oil supply, oil and gas supply in the world, are being involved as active participants in, uh, in COP and that they are really stepping up their pledges and taking, I would say, an unprecedented commitment and, and role in the energy transition. One thing that I, I have been fairly surprised about in the last couple of years has been that, you know, notwithstanding, of course, the the concern about energy security in Europe, uh, the European Commission has taken steps forward to accelerate the, the energy transition, to introduce measures that were also not necessarily as popular. One of the examples is the carbon border adjustment mechanism that was recently introduced actually a couple of months ago to basically put a tax related to carbon content of the goods imported into Europe. There was just a few days ago an announcement on uh, putting a levy on methane emissions for imports into into the European Union and a maximum amount of methane on oil and gas in Europe. So, Definitely, more can be done. I completely agree with the, with the fact that more can be done, but I also see some positive signals coming from some countries that maybe we we know are undergoing difficult geopolitical situations as well.
2: I, I let me let me just talk a little bit about geopolitics and the energy trilemma that you've already mentioned, Elena. So. You know, we invented the World Energy Trilemma Framework nearly 20 years ago. And what we would say is energy security has returned to the table, but it never really went away. It's just that governments in Europe were outsourcing their energy security to the market, and that came back to bite them. Not every country outsourced its energy security to the market. So Europe was particularly vulnerable when Russia invaded Ukraine. So we, we also have to remember that the security issues for Europe haven't gone away. It's not just the gas security issue, it's the nuclear refueling issue in energy that's really important. And I think the the bigger story is that the geopolitics of energy has broadened beyond oil and gas into mm-hmm. critical minerals and materials and supply chains, non-energy resources, and also to data and technology. And we, we've we got the risk of a green technology arms race or a green regulatory race, you know, it's not just the European Green Deal and and carbon border adjustments, it's also the US IRA schemes and how these are being viewed by other countries as are these me first agendas. So I think the challenge is, how do you, you know, for governments is how do they step up to take a lead without also being so self-serving or me first in their responses? And how do they, I think Sultan al-Jab was very clear on his presidency at COP, He wants something that's more inclusive. He needs something that's also more affordable. He needs something that's more sustainable. And his his view is that oil and gas needs to be at the table for that. But that's not to say that oil and and gas needs to do some very heavy lifting. And I think that it's time that we broaden the COP agenda away from just talking about reducing emissions. We have to start talking about climate adaptation, carbon removals, and climate repair and the role of nature-based solutions and other technologies that can be brought to the table. So I think this COP, if we really are wanting to keep the hope of 1.5 degrees alive, firstly, we're going to overshoot, so climate adaptation is going to be essential. But if we want to keep it alive, we're going to have to have a, an all-leavers approach, and we're going to have to have an, everybody sitting at the table as mature people, and we're going to have to have a new approach to collaboration, which is, Collaborating with other people who we might not agree with, but we all need to move together. And I think that's the challenge of this COP is it's no use keep throwing money, technology and commitments at things. We've got to involve billions of more people. They've got to see the benefits for themselves and they've got to get engaged. It's the socio-politics that worries me, not just the geopolitics.
3: Yeah, on uh, on climate adaptation in particular, you're absolutely right. The conversation needs to stop being only about mitigation because adaptation is absolutely crucial. And unfortunately, it's uh, the effects of climate change impact low income countries much more than than high-income countries. And I think that at the moment, the, the estimate is that low-income countries would need uh, something in the range of $350 billion a year to face the effects of climate change until 2030. Whereas currently, the, the amount of uh, climate finance that is devoted to adaptation in low-income countries is a mere $20 billion or close to that. Uh, and while at this year's COP, there is a, a potential Potential for that amount to be doubled—it's still woefully far away from from what would be needed. And unfortunately, this is not an investment that can be postponed indefinitely, right? Because um, the effects of climate change are are happening very soon. So, I think one of the one of the things that will definitely need to come out at COP twenty eight if we want to be serious about getting everybody at the table including low-income countries and and making sure that they are prepared for the the climate catastrophe that is going to happen in the next uh, in the next uh, few decades is to step up this commitment as well and direct more finance to preparing infrastructure and to protect people really
2: absolutely so you know the infrastructure investment gap at the moment is We've managed to increase global investment to $1 trillion, but we actually need to get it to $4 trillion a year to 2030 and beyond in order to make this transition happen. And it's also got to go, a, a proportion of that has to go to investing in the most vulnerable who are the least developed and say so the emerging economies. Just in terms of what we have to invest in, we see a, an increasing gap between the investment in new generation capacity. So we're doing... We're doing a lot better in terms of investing in more renewable energy production. But we've got a big gap with infrastructure investment and storage investment and um, how we enable productive uses of energy and affordable uses of energy. So it's not just about the money, raising money. It's also how that money gets allocated and how it gets used. And we need financial innovation. That's another conversation that's coming up at this COP around new models of financing so i see more extreme models in the bigger global public private partnerships about big capital multi-million dollar investments or billion dollar investments in new tech and new systems then we see the microfinancing bit but we've got this dearth of financing models in the middle for cities and communities and for other types of constituencies
1: you're absolutely right i mean i think that goes back to your earlier point, Angela, is I think you just outlined the key problem or challenge rather for COP28 is there is a lot of the actions that are being taken by governments right now that are a me first. And so you're bringing all these different parties together to try to do something on a global coordinated scale. But these same individuals that are going to be at the conference negotiating have to come answer at home. And given the the current political environment, there is a lot of push for a me first. So that's the challenge is you need to do something on a global scale that involves everybody, but then you've got political environments that may be putting a a hard press on these politicians to get reelected. And that's exactly the challenge that that we're going to be yeah, facing. Yeah, I mean,
2: there's a lot of what I would call time horizon mismatching, right? We've got the the buildup of climate momentum and you've still got big systems inertia in, in energy systems. There's no Pop up shop in energy. You can't just convert money instantly into new energy systems and products. So there's a big misunderstanding about the scale, scope, and inertia that's actually involved in this current energy transition. But you're right in terms of, um, you know, we, we, ne- we need solutions of all shapes and sizes. We need more and more effective collaboration levers. And we need something which helps us escape the short termism of the market and political cycles. This isn't a very easy thing to do. And what you're trying to do is is have a long-term view and work out from that view, what are the essential decisions that have to be made in the next 10 years? Markets and politics like quick fixes. And what we do know is quick fixes don't get us to the scale and scope of solutions that we need. And I think something that
3: is not helping at the moment is also the fact that many of the technologies that will be absolutely vital, whether they are Actual technologies, or whether they are uh, leveraging nature-based solutions, for example, are fairly short-lived, both from a technological perspective and from a from a market uh, perspective, or, or from the knowledge of of government. And uh, unfortunately, some of the, the the decisions that need to be made now do not have the necessary background and the necessary length of knowing these technologies but also are being riddled in a way by a lot of candles on the market you know we've all read uh, for example the the guardian articles that are addressing the the issues on the carbon offsetting markets etc and i think that sometimes unfortunately some of the more short term issues are not creating the right environment for making the right decisions for the long term. And I do hope that this COP is able to also look at the how to fix some of the shorter term issues so that we don't throw away the baby with the bathwater in some cases.
2: I think... So, you are t- you know, there are issues around transparency, there are issues around trustworthiness, and there are issues around transformational change, right? So, we have to remember that this global energy transition is unprecedented. Energy transitions have happened throughout history, but they've never been deliberately managed. Our challenge with this one is actually we're having to deliberately manage it to be successful, and that requires... New ways of working that this is an unprecedented challenge. We have no history. There are some phenomenal learnings going on around the world of big changes at scale and speed. They're coming out of China, they come out of Brazil, they come out of many different regions of the world. For some reason, we seem to be only able to pay attention to what happens really in the US or Europe and maybe the Middle East, but usually from an incredibly judgmental perspective, we don't really like, somebody doesn't seem to like what's going on. But actually, if you look, there's actually a great deal of progress being made. There's a great deal of very heavy lifting going on. But we have to get away from this perfection being the enemy of the good syndrome that I think really affects a lot of climate activism in Europe and maybe climate activism in other areas. So, you know, I've been involved in climate change for 40 years, but I, the, the atmosphere doesn't really care about whether hydrogen is green, blue, pink, or purple. What it really cares about is how much greenhouse gas gets emitted from that. So I think we have, we're, we're operating in a very polarised and divisive era, especially in energy. But the climate negotiation, remember, is not just energy-centric, it's food system-centric, it's nature-centric, it's development-centric. It's how do we link climate change to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. It's a phenomenally big agenda. But coming out of COP, I think we need more realistic hope and for that. We need to have a much broader set of solutions and options on the table. And we have to be much more tolerant that actually people will be able to deliver solutions and success, but not necessarily in the way we would do it here, and that they will have to do it with other people who might not be like them. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge is we've got to get a lot more mature about our models of collaboration and stop expecting or wanting just to work with people like us or people who do things like us. We're not going to get there that way.
1: Angela, you mentioned the amount of investment that needs to go into infrastructure. And I think that's something that is probably underestimated at this point, because there's a tremendous amount of infrastructure globally that needs to be built out to support the energy transition. So going into COP28, how much do you think the current economic environment is going to play in these discussions, particularly around coming up with creative and new financing opportunities? Because you you talk about decisions needing to be made that look out, you know, 10, 15, 20 years But a lot of these same people are looking at the inflationary environment, the economic conditions, and they have a hard time looking past 12 months right now on it. So, I mean, how do you think that's going to factor into the overall discussion?
2: Again, if you leave it to um, capital markets only, you're going to get short term behaviors because it's a quick returns business. Everybody wants to maximize their returns in the least amount of time possible. But I I think climate change requires a different approach and and energy systems transition requires a different approach. People talk about patient capitalism or they talk about blended finance. They talk about de-risking capital investment for emerging and developing countries. All this means that actually making a finance flow into all the different regions and places that it needs to go. Where you won't, you you may you might not necessarily get an instant, fast return. So infrastructure investment is a is a long term play, right? You can if you want to, if you want to really achieve energy transition, some of the stuff we've got to do is we've got to connect supply and demand in different parts of the world using pipelines or using um, more copper wire or more transmission or more storage than we've ever had before, and all of that requires materials, and it takes time. If you want to lay a subsea cable, it takes you 10 years to build a subsea cable manufacturing plant and get it to standard. So there's no instant pop-up response response from investment in infrastructure. But you're right, in the last two decades, we've had systematic underinvestment in infrastructure across the world. So we have to not just build new power systems, we've got to maintain and operate existing infrastructures. We've got to support societies with the with the costs of early stranding of capital assets if we do decide to forego those. And we've got to pay for decommissioning of whatever kit exists. So the costs of infrastructure are broader than we t- tend to talk about. But we have to remember that the price of technology, we keep talking about the falling price of renewable energy technologies. That's not the same as the system cost of supplying useful energy, nor the value in use to the end user. And we've got to have a much better conversation about connecting affordability and price and value. And that never happens anywhere as far as I can see.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there is patient capital out there. I think the, the question is going to be around the risk profile, which again requires the governments to utilize their balance sheet to either step in via guarantees or put the money in, the, in themselves. And so that's going to obviously create a lot of, of discussion around how we get this done because the governments across the globe are going to have to pay a big part in obtaining that I, th- I think
2: we're also going to have to let go of our obsession with stability, though, and returns. We're going to have to be realistic about this. I mean, you can have all the money in the world, but if climate change happens doesn't matter how rich you are. It's not really going to count for anything. There's going to be nowhere else. I sometimes think we're living in a world where we think there's a scenario where rich and wealthy people can keep all their money to themselves and there'll be somewhere else where there's a golden parachute that they can go to. I mean, we've got to make capital markets work in ways that really help with this infrastructure investment. And we're going to have to share the benefits and risks of that. It's not about making it risk-free it's about making it risk fair and
3: governments also have a, a big role not just in investing but also in uh, giving the right incentives for for investment and in pricing uh, emissions correctly which at the moment unfortunately is not is not really happening in any almost any country in the world uh, so you know emissions at the moment get generated without without having a financial impact for the emitter in most cases. And governments do play a big role in making sure that those emissions are priced at a at a higher level, especially in those countries that have been responsible for a large share of emissions up to this point and that the right incentives for, for investment are coming through.
1: Now, Angela, you, you've obviously been to a number of conferences and summits uh, throughout the year. Uh, what are some of the key and most exciting things that you've taken away from some yeah, of Yeah, I,
2: I travel extensively. I'm, I recently visited um, China and Asia and Singapore. You know, I'm amazed at the scale of ambition and the delivery on promises that it, that are going on in China in terms of how they are managing um, their transition. You know, just talking to State Grid of China, they, I mean, State Grid has 1.1 billion customers. That's just a seventh of the population right there and when you look at what they're doing in terms of decarbonizing and also in terms of growing the renewables onto their grid and addressing storage issues and managing security affordability and sustainability i think it's very impressive when you go to um i was in singapore and in singapore they only announced their hydrogen strategy last year and now they've already got an expression of interest out for ammonia I was in brazil last week and in brazil we have to remember that in the 1970s when they had their energy security shock the oil price shock they took a very brave and courageous decision then that they would shift their entire mobility system to, to ethanol and biofuels and brazil is already in that game what can we learn from what brazil did what can we learn from what china has achieved when we go to chile chile has you know it's a it's a country which is incredibly vertical which is really bad news if you want to just rely on solar power because the whole country has the same sunshine portfolio but it's got a sunny north and a windy south so they're trying to work out how do they develop a system that makes use of those benefits and storage and chile has been a leader in regulatory and market innovation in using free market innovation to really get its own transitions going no subsidies you know, no market interference by the government, but it actually works. So there's lots of different examples. Geographies differ, systems differ, political economies differ, but if we're willing to shift away from one size fits all and I'm leading your following into, we can learn, lead with and learn from each other. I think there's great potential for us to move these incredible challenges, at speed and scale.
1: So question on that. You- you, know, you mentioned how the, there really needs to be call it an attitude adjustment uh, of, of the parties and the discussions surrounding this. Have you seen that evolve over the past previous discussions to where we are now, or has it stayed fairly the same? And we're really looking for that change going no, I, forward. No, I think
2: there's. I don't think there's an attitude adjustment. Really, people who go to the negotiations go in the best in good spirit, right? I think they go as. With the best that they can do, I actually think there's an attitude adjustment in media reporting that's needed because media loves a good theatre. There has to be heroes and villains, and winners and losers. And I just wonder if we're living in this echo chamber of, you know, celebrity energy transition rather than the realities of what's going on. And that feedback loop is incredibly dangerous because people start to believe the theatre rather than the reality. And I think there's a lot of that going on. We need we need reporting which actually pays as much attention to the good news as the bad news. Bad news sells, clickbait works, but actually there are stories of positive change happening. And it's really important that kids and everybody else hear this because otherwise we're going to be driven by the politics of fear and the politics of fear and the geopolitics of fear never get us into a good
1: place. I couldn't agree more uh, with that. I mean, that, that's the reason people ask me all the time, why do you do the podcast? Uh, what do you get out of it? it? It's actually education, and to kind of just present the facts and kind of what needs to be done to everybody, and not a media line or or the headline. Oh, do this and do that. It's actually getting down into what do we really need to do and how can we accomplish this. So I, I like I said, I agree one hundred percent.
2: And I, you know, I'm not I'm not an industry association lobbyist. I don't, I'm not lobbying for any technology. We're an independent, impartial and impactful organization that's 100 years old and we, we've got a brand to protect. But when I say oil and gas need to be at the table doing heavy lifting, I can be immediately vilified because I've used oil and gas in a positive sense. The realities are renewable energy are going to have to have other clean energy friends to get to scale. We can't materialize a renewable, a green to green energy revolution fast enough for the whole world. And this is a very hard story to engage people's interests in because they've been told renewables are abundant and free and cheap so and universal so there's nothing getting in the way except these companies standing in your way and that's not an honest conversation it's not companies that are standing in the way the scale and scope of what we're trying to do is unprecedented everybody needs to get engaged people who are using energy or buying food, need to be responsible for their part in this. They need to understand their choices. So I think we need to do much more in involving demand and engaging more people in diverse communities and understanding their choices and playing their part, rather than stacking up the odds that it's those guys who are the suppliers and producers. I think there's no enemies. There's no race. This isn't that type of conversation. This has to be a much better quality conversation about more and more effective levers of collaboration at scale that involve not just business and the governments, but all of us somehow.
1: Well, Angela, Elena, thanks for uh, joining us for the discussion today. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, David.
1: I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule.
2: It's been a pleasure talking to you, and Elena, and let's all not just keep our fingers crossed for COP28. I'm a, I was, I'm a realistic hoper, and I was taught that hope... Is not a lottery ticket, you clutch sitting on a settee, it's an axe you use to break down the door. So let's break down the doors and barriers of collaboration, then we'll be successful.
1: I'm David Banmiller and this is The Interchange Recharged, out every second Friday at 7am Eastern Time. If you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, The Energy Gang. It's a bi-weekly look at the biggest and most important stories in energy, hosted by Ed Crooks, with regular guests, Dr. Melissa Lott from Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and Amy Myers Jaffe of NYU's Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab, plus a roster of analysts, commentators, and industry leaders. It's everything you need to know in one place. Join the Energy Gang conversation, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.